0: Uh, One of my favorite verses when I came to faith was that line where Jesus speaks and he says uh, to the servant who has been faithful, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And um, that faithful servant is what, entering the faith, I want it to be. I want it to finish well. I, I want to be, it's said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, the world appreciates faithfulness. I mean, faithfulness in the office, faithfulness in the home. Faithfulness is appreciated. It's seen by the world. It's enjoyed by the world. To be faithful and committed, walking in integrity, is a good thing. I mean, people that are faithful are trusted, they're loved. Well, Isaiah 6 is kind of like a mountain peak passage of God's faithfulness. It's going to serve us in two ways today. It's going to serve us first that when we look at Isaiah... We're going to see God's faithfulness to continue uh, his plan of redemption, even though um, the people of God are woefully sinful and broken. You know, the first five chapters have kind of been about about judgment. And and you're going to find in 7 to 12 now, there's going to be a, a bit more hope coming through as we begin to speak about this unique child that will be coming. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a bridge between the two, and it reminds us that God is not done with people uh, when they seem to be done with him. And, and God is faithful to the promise that he's made that all the nations will come before him, in spite of all the nations running from him. And not only do we see God's faithfulness in this passage, in, in terms of his continuing his plan of redemption with an unruly people, But we also see God's faithfulness in this man, Isaiah. This is kind of a snapshot of Isaiah here, where he is being raised up to do a task that is brutally difficult. You know, we love faithfulness, but we really love faithfulness when it's through difficult circumstances. And we're going to see that in Isaiah's life. And what I want to do at the end of the... So I want to look at two parts to the sermon. The first part is simply going to be, we're going to spend some minutes on Isaiah and God and this work that God is doing in this world. But then I want to draw a parallel out of Isaiah's life to your life and, and, and look at what, what, how does God make his people faithful? You know, Alexander McLaren, the great uh, British preacher um, back in the uh, 19th century, said, this is how God makes a prophet. This is how God will make a prophet. And he preaches out of Isaiah 6. So I want to see how we are made into being faithful servants of God. Now, I want to set the context for you because Isaiah was asked to preach in very, very difficult context. You're going to see about the name King Uzziah. King Uzziah was was a good king, generally speaking. He took the throne at 16. He reigned for 58 years, so he had a very long reign. It was a prosperous reign. Um, Israel really developed in terms of their affluence, their power, their repute among the nations. But like a lot of these kings, he didn't end well. He didn't end faithfully. As you look through Kings and Chronicles, it's just a, a sad testimony to, apart from God's grace, we don't finish well. And he didn't. He, pride and arrogance from the blessings of God, inflated his ego, and what he did was he wanted to take the role of the priests and began offering incense to the gods. Well, God wasn't to be mocked, and so he struck him with leprosy right in the temple. He finished out his reign in isolation and in disgrace. And Uzziah is going to become kind of a picture of the nation. This is the nation. started out strong, but it ended in ruin and misery and disgrace. And so Uzziah has died in this. So Isaiah's call is Uzziah has died. Now, any time a nation goes through a political transition, we don't appreciate how wonderful it is when one administration gives way to another administration. It wasn't that way? There would be civil unrest, or the enemies around them would seize the transition of political power to make an advance on the nation of Israel. And they are in national and spiritual troubling times. In fact, the reason that Isaiah is putting his commissioning here in chapter 6 as opposed to chapter 1 or chapter 2 is he wants us to see in the first five chapters this is how deplorable the nation was. This is why God has called such a faithful prophet to give such a strong message because this is the state of the union. So turn with me, if you will. Extended introduction, but I kind of wanted to set it up for you. We're going to see God's faithfulness, both in his continuing the covenant promises to the people that we're going to see comes out of the judgment, but we're also going to see it in Isaiah. Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? This is a towering passage. It's dizzy to look at. It really is. And it's intimidating as well as glorious to attempt to preach. But let, let me orient you what's happening here with, with three bullets that you can get your mind wrapped around. We're going to see the revelation of God here. So God is making a faithful prophet. He's displaying his faithfulness. He's going to show us a revelation. And then he's gonna, we're going to see a response this revelation. And that's really always in Scripture. Scripture is always revealing something about God, and the revelation always calls for a response to that. There's never indifference to a revelation. There's always a response to it. And then there's going to be this call to service, the third point. There'll be this call to service. So God's going to reveal himself. There's going to be a response and then <clears throat> to that revelation, and then and only then will God call Isaiah into service. So Look with me in this revelation in the first four verses here that we read. It's a profound revelation. God, the first thing he displays to Isaiah is that is that Yahweh is a permanent God, always alive. It's in the context of the year that Uzziah died that he is taken up to see God. So it's in the backdrop of this king of 52 years. It was a long reign of a king, unnaturally long, He lived and lived and lived. Some might have thought he'll never die. He's living and living and living, and he dies. And then we have the permanence of God who's sitting on the throne. He said, I saw the Lord. He's sitting on the throne. In the context of death, he's sitting on the throne. You have kings and czars and princes and queens and and presidents and prime ministers. They all die. The Napoleons die. The Stalins die. The Hitlers die. The Reagans die. They all die. He never dies. He, is always, he never goes through a political transition. He never goes through a threat to his kingdom. The first thing we see is this eternal God always on the throne. Israel's God was never the king. The king was a surrogate. It, it was a picture. It was a vice regent. The people of God always have God as their king. He's always living. He's never. Di- you and I, we will die. He will never die. It's profoundly helpful to know that God is eternal having no birth, no death, always existing as king. But not only does he see the eternality of God, but he also sees the authority of God. It says that he's high and lifted up. That's an expression for absolute sovereignty. Our recognition of his authority is not what gives him authority. He has authority in and of who he is. That he has authority as he raises up kings, as he sets kings down. That God exercises authority over his creation. He is the one high and lifted up. Can you imagine seeing him high and lifted up, sitting on his throne with his train filling the temple? Daniel gives very clear words to this. In chapter 4, he says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? God has authority over all things. Interesting, John Calvin, when he wrote his commentary on the book of Isaiah, he dedicated it to King Edward, that young king in England, and then then Queen Elizabeth, that is, the queen following Queen Mary. He dedicated this book saying, you are there because he has put you there. And he said, you want to lead as he puts you there. This is Calvin, a French exile in Geneva, writing to the head of England's Country saying you're there because he put you there and you better reign in accordance with that. That's the authority of God, but not just the authority, the majesty of God. Look at these seraphim. They're above God. They are. What are they? Well, there's not a lot written about them, actually. The word itself means burning ones. And they have faces and hands and feet. They have intelligence and they have voices and they just sing. This holy, holy, holy. They're just around the throne. With two wings, they cover their eyes. They cannot see the sheer brilliance of God. With two, they cover their feet, humbling themselves before God. With two, they just fly, waiting to do whatever God commands. They don't cover their ears. They want to hear what he has to say to be about it. This majesty of of myriads of burning ones around him but not just the majesty of God, the holiness of God, Isaiah sees. He's absolutely holy. There they are, holy, holy, in this in this responsive singing, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. <clears throat> they are there just proclaiming his holiness. So they're not saying loving, 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 or kind, kind, kind. They're saying holy, holy. Holy, holy. Proclaiming his holiness. The, the word holy means other or different. And, and it describes God more than any other adjective in the Old Testament. He is known as holy more than any other adjective. And when I speak about God's holiness, I'm not talking about like this ascending ladder that, that well, we're kind of holy and and, and and there are some people that are really holy people, and then God's at the top. Now, he's really holy. Now, the word holy means it's other. It's just, it's different. He's of a different order. He's radically different than we are in holiness. In fact, A.W. Tozer, 20th century pastor, writes this. He says, We must not think of God as highest in some ascending order of beings, starting with the sim- the single cell and going up from the fish to the bird to the animal to the man, to angel, to cherub, to God. God is as high above the archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. This is the holiness of God. So Isaiah is brought into, this, into the house of God, and he sees him. He sees his permanence and his, his uh, authority and his majesty and his glory. That's what Isaiah saw. That's God revealing himself to this prophet in the making. Now, how do you view God? Do you view God with these categories? I mean, do you consider God in these terms? I, I think if the seraphim respond to him with reverence and awe and humility... Why do we feel oftentimes so comfortable with a casualness or indifference to him? It, it The thresholds tremble, but do we tremble before this God? Why don't we? I, I mean, I, I really, I wanted to scratch my head on that because I don't. And and I know that many of you don't. And oftentimes, you know, the answer that kept coming back to me is, is that we don't, we don't worship the revealed God. We often worship a created God that we have fashioned and that we have made. It's simple idolatry 101. I mean, if you ask people, you know, everybody says something about God. Everybody has a view of God. And you can ask them, what is God like? Or you'll hear people's theology when they'll say, well, I think God is like blank, and you fill in the blank. He may be loving, kind, tolerant, whatever you fill it in. Everybody has an understanding of God. And it generally is birthed out of their own understanding. You know, and these, these false images of God have infected the church, clearly. I, I think about the, we all, I think, have been exposed to the grandfather view of God. He's older, he's nice, he's wiser. He, he's, he's like a grandparent compared to a parent. So a parent is all nervous about the first child and everything they do. They're just micromanaging a child. The grandparent, ah, don't worry about it, they'll be fine. They're kind of just let them go because the grandparent knows that one event probably won't cause the kid to get out of Harvard or something. I mean, it's not that big a deal. And the grandparent has a kind of a wider birth on behavior of children, right? He's a, and also he can give them back to the parents. Uh, but, but we look at God that way. He's kind of tolerant. He's older. He's wiser. He's easygoing. Some of us look at God as like an EMT. And EMT, you're glad they're around. You don't really need them all the time, and so you don't think about them all the time. But when you do need them, you call them, and they're right there, and they're helping you. And we treat God in a similar way, right? We don't think about them a lot. We don't dwell upon them, meditate them. But when we need them and we've got a problem, boom, we're all over God, and we want him to help deliver us. Others of us look at God more like a CEO, Well, he doesn't really know the details of the business per se. God's kind of aloof. He doesn't really know the details of my life, but God's just there and he's going to make the world get to where it needs to be when it needs to be there. So kind of this overseeing of this corporate picture rather than the intimate detail of our lives. I mean, what is your view of God? And what have you based your view upon? And does your life, does it reflect the view that you say you have? Because I I think many of us do tend to worship a God that is strangely quite like us, that we fashion it. What what false views or what minimalist views have infected your understanding of the character of God? Because Isaiah had his vision radically clear when he saw God, that that, that his vision was changed on the character of God. And here's why it's important, because after God has revealed himself, that's the first point that I'm speaking about, Look at the response that you find in verse 5. Isaiah gives a response, and it's a response to what God has revealed himself to be. And he says this, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, Interesting here, Isaiah had preached in chapter 5 and pronounced six woes on the people of Israel for their sin. You know what a woe is. Woe is just an old English word which which indicates there is impending disaster coming. There is impending ruin coming. Ready yourself, you're about to be wiped away. It's something if you saw a tsunami coming, you'd say, Woe is me. It's disaster is coming. He pronounces the seventh on himself. First recorded words of Isaiah. He says, Woe is me. In other words, I'm ruined. I'm done. This—he's giving a cry of personal moral anguish. He sees this; his life is disintegrating. He's undone. He's unraveling. Is what he's saying. Now that I'm standing before God, I see who I really am, and I'm undone. I—I I, I may have believed in the false prophets before. Now I have a clear handle on who, on who I am. But notice it comes from seeing. Look what he says. He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's in seeing God that we truly understand who we are. And you notice his response to this revelation. You know, a lot of people think, well, if I had a vision of God, it would be grandeur and beautiful and it would be just resplendent and I'd be caught up in this ecstatic experience with God. It's not so. The the, the visions of God create terror in people. I mean, they create terror. Shaking is the normal response to seeing God, not running into his arms and jumping in his lap. not saying he's not a loving father, but the sight of God in his sheer holiness causes terror and trembling. And that's why he says, woe is me. But it's not the power of God. An old Baptist scholar, English scholar of the 20th century, he wrote these words, he says, when people fear God, It is not the consciousness of our humanity in the presence of power, but it's the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. Let me say it again. It's not us being before God because he's so strong that we tremble. It's our knowledge of our sin in the presence of sheer purity. That's what causes concern and nervousness. And look at what happens to Isaiah after verse 5. What's he do? He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, he confesses. He, he, he sees this revelation of God. His response is conviction of his own sin, There is no blame shifting. There isn't, I made some bad decisions. I had some errors in judgment. I should have thought through that more. There was none of that. There was none of the wife you gave me. There was none of the job that I had, the times that I lived, the country that was my own. There was none of that. It was simply, I am a man of unclean lips. Now, the lips of a prophet were the most graced part of his being. The most graced part. And that's what he confesses first. That which he has, which is most honorable from his perspective, is absolutely unworthy before God. And and you know what he does? He includes himself with the people. Uh, Please make note of this. He says, I am among a people of unclean lips. You know, we tend to think, we look around, you know, kind of if you were to look at Luke 15, you have that parable of Jesus. And he said the Pharisee and the tax collector are both in the temple. And the tax collector says, uh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this Pharisee. I'm not like these adulterers and tax collectors. You know, hey, I'm better because I've got my buddy over here that's really rotten. And so I look naturally better. What Isaiah is doing is he's saying this. Isaiah most likely was on a social scale better and a moral scale better than everybody else. But he doesn't even look at anybody. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm among a people of unclean lips. Everybody is guilty before God. There are no degrees. God doesn't look upon you more favorably because you're a little less worse than your neighbor. In other words, they're fully guilty, partially guilty, a little guilty. Guess what? They're all guilty. So he's not. He's not his confession doesn't have any part left reserved for him to save a little bit of pride that he's not as bad as these other people. So he's convicted, and he confesses. And then look what happens after the confession. This is the glory of confession. This is why we continue to confess. The glory of confession is God, in grace, sends a seraph to take a burning coal and to anoint his lips with it. Now, he takes it in a pair of tongs. It is interesting. The seraphim are burning ones, Burning ones tend not to be scared of burning coals. A piece of fire picking up a piece of fire is not a big deal. He takes it in tongs because of its holiness. And the reason it's holy is because it's come from an altar where a sacrifice has been laid. And the fire of God's wrath has come down and consumed the sacrifice on behalf of the worshiper. And the coal is symbolizing God's graciousness in forgiving Isaiah, not just his sins, but removing the guilt. It, here is a beautiful picture, not just of, of the, a picture of confession for the new believer. So, so all of us, it, for those people who are not Christian or for the Christian, before you were a Christian, this is a picture of what God does in forgiving us of our sins and drawing us into the family of God. This is at the point of justification. When you move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, God forgives you because you've confessed to the holiness of God. These are the fundamental needs for when someone says, how am I saved? Well, the conviction of sin leads to the confession of it, and then God cleanses you. Now, that's not just for the new believer, or that's not just for the conversion, but sanctification. Folks, if you're a Christian here, we still practice this confession of our sins. We repent every day. We want to be restored every... That's why I say to you, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day we're thinking about the fact that we have sinned, and, and we, don't, it, we don't fall into despair over our sin. We run in delight to this altar, this picture, if you will, of Christ, and he will be the lamb on that altar So so in our our passage here, we have God has revealed himself as holy and majestic and authoritative and permanent. And then we have Isaiah responding. This is the proper response. If you're going to be a faithful servant, this is the proper response that we make. But it's after that response, it's after the cleansing, it's after the dealing with our sin that God called Isaiah into service. Look with me at verse 8. He says, And I heard a voice. Voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then, of course, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Isaiah is volunteering for the task. Isaiah wants to do it. Isaiah puts forth his name to do it. He wants to serve God. But I want you to know that his service to God is not born out of a desire to gain favor with God. It's born out of the favor that he has already gained. See, this is the difference between the non-Christian or the religious man and the Christian. The religious man wants to obey and serve God so as to be accepted. The Christian obeys and desires to serve God because he has been accepted. It's a huge difference. You can't see the religious man and the Christian man. They look the same from the outside, but it's all in the heart. Am I serving and obeying out of the joy of him having graced me with the gospel? Or am I obeying and serving because I think if I do this, then he's going to love me a little bit more, or it's going to secure my position in heaven a little tighter. Huge difference. There's salvation and damnation. That's the crossroads right there. So Isaiah offers to serve. But look at the difficulty of the task that he has. Look with me in verse 9. So God calls him. Isaiah says, here I am. He says, okay, go to the people. And this is the charge that he's been given. And say to them, keep on hearing, do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. He commands him, make the heart of this people dull, make their ears heavy, blind their eyes, Otherwise, they may see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and turn and be healed. In other words, he's saying to Isaiah, go and preach a message of judgment. God's finished with this generation. He's finished with them. He's done. God made a decision in heaven. I'm done. Judgment is falling. And he is now enacting the judgment made in heaven through the preaching of a man. Do you get that? That's the level of importance of preaching. God brings his heavenly judgments through the preached word to people. Well, I mean, you can imagine. I mean, what a task to be given. I mean, you're going to preach a message of judgment to everybody. That's why he asks, how long, O Lord? How long must I do this? How long are you going to judge your people? In other words, how long will this go on? He's terrified. He has not just because he's scared of delivering a hard message. He's thinking, what about the plan of God? How's it going to happen? You promised Abraham that through your sea the nations would be blessed. What's happening if your people are taken away? So he says, how long? Well, he tells him. He says, how long he has to preach? He says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes his people far away, and the forsaken places are many. In other words, the points of idolatry just spring up like roaches. That's how long it will be. Can you imagine if you had that message to America or to, or to any country? I mean, can you imagine? The land desolate, all of Israel taken away to Babylon. And they were transported. Thousands. They're gone. God brings this judgment upon a people because of their disobedience and their failure to walk by faith in the promises that He so lovingly gave us. What a message! It's a dark message. But you know, God's word doesn't end on judgment. It ends on hope. And if you look with me in 13, you're going to see a a faint ray of hope. But it will grow as we march forward. Look at what he says. It's a confusing verse. It's It's a highly debated verse. It has... Tremendous amounts written on it. It's questioned. It's not in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But here it is. It stands. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I think what he's saying, all right, let me submit this to you, is that judgment will fall and there's going to be a tenth that remain after the judgment and then that will be burned that will be judged in other words you can imagine israel like this glorious tree just leafy and healthy but but it just goes down and and as we saw uzziah's reign end in ruin and disgrace so the nation ends in ruin and disgrace it's like the tree is cut off at the stump and then it's burned it's like, well, that's the end of the story. God's done. Let's pack it up and leave. There's nothing left. But he says this kind of enigmatic little phrase. He says, the holy seed is in its stump. I propose to you that that while the present generation is without hope, there is a, a future generation of hope. That this holy seed is in its stump. That there is that there is promise in the stump that a people, a seed, a, a branch will shoot forth out of this stump. And, and a people come, a new Israel, a remnant people whom God will forgive. God will make holy, set apart to continue the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. When he said the nations will be blessed. And then he said in Genesis 22, he said, through you a seed or an offspring, same word, seed and offspring will come forth and will bless the nations. And so God even though he judged this generation and said no more that God's promise will continue through this seed, this stump will put forth. And that's what we're going to begin reading about in 7 8 9 10 and 12. 11 and 12, you're going to see the this hope and this light beginning to dawn more and more, particularly then when we get to chapters 40 and on. But, but, but this is God. God has both a message of judgment and grace. It's always together. Out of the ashes of judgment will come forth hope and salvation. That's what we see in Christ, was it not? I mean, out of the judgment of Christ, the death into the tomb, what do we see? We saw darkness for a few days, but then light. And then life comes out. And a new people are created. Same thing. So we see here the faithfulness of God. That, yes, he brings judgment to a disobedient people, but there's that ray of hope. And, And not only do we see the faithfulness of God of continuing his promises for us, that we are the fruit of, the fact that you exist, you are giving evidence to the truth of this prophecy because you believe this is true. Because if this wasn't true, we wouldn't be here worshiping. But not only that, I see in Isaiah... A pattern. And we can draw patterns in the Old Testament. You know, God remains the same in the Old New Testament. The gospel is the same in the Old New Testament. The dilemma of humanity is the same in the Old Testament. So we can draw parallels. And I want to remind you of this that God's faithfulness in building up Isaiah is the same faithfulness that we need. So let me just, let me end with just three points that I want you to consider of how to be, how to grow in faithfulness. So that Isaiah might be a picture, a pattern of faithfulness and persevering godliness in the midst of a difficult context. And so these are three points that I trust will help you walk in the same faithfulness. Don't be surprised if they follow the first three points. And and that is this. Number one, you need to get a right view of God. We need to have a right, strong view of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, great, Tom. If you just take me up to heaven and I get to see God, then I'll have a right view of God. And, uh, but we can't presume upon God to do that. The, the visions that God gives are unique. But, but I'm thankful to tell you uh, that we don't need to go to heaven to get a right view of God because God has come down to earth to give us a right view of God. I mean, this is the point of the incarnation. This is the point of Christ. This is the point that we're going to see in chapter 7 and this child, Emmanuel, this is what we're going to see in chapter 9, where the government's going to respond to soldiers. We don't have to go to heaven because heaven has come down to us in Christ. And this is the way the gospel writer John explains Jesus, that he is coming for God. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? His glory. Well, what glory is that? Well, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the glory that we see in Jesus is the same glory with the Father. So looking at Christ, I'm seeing God. That's why he says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus being the God-man is making him known to us. So how do we have this vision of glory? How do we have a great view of God? Well, it's to contemplate, to meditate, to think upon the person of Christ. That we have to think about, dwell upon, meditate on Christ. Why do I say that? Well, think of Jesus' ministry. It was all about God. You see, for example, the preeminent or the um, permanence of God in Christ. Death couldn't hold him. He was crucified, dead, buried, and then rose. Death could not hold Christ. He says in Revelation chapter 1 at the end, he says, I was dead, I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That in Christ you see the same permanence that we saw in God, we see in Christ. Or the authority of God, you see that in Christ. Jesus, did, did he not command demons to flee? Did he, did, did he not command people to be healed? Did he not command the seas to still? Did he not command death to give up the dead? Lazarus, come out of the grave? Jesus commands. He has authority. All authority has been given to him. Every knee, heaven, heaven. And earth and under the earth will bow before him. Christ has that same authority that he is now exercising. When we look at Christ, we see God. And not just the authority, the majesty. I mean, think of the majesty of Jesus Christ's unique birth, the transfiguration, where he was glorified. And Peter and James and John saw it. Think about people worshiping him. He received worship as Christ. Or think about the the holiness of Jesus Living perfectly according to the word, living faithfully, always walking out his life in the light of the promises of the Father. Perfectly, without sin, without shifting. Just as Ray prayed about God so we could pray, Jesus did the same. So, So this is Christ, this glorious picture of Christ. So get a strong view of Jesus. Meditate, think about it. When you encounter as a saint... As you encounter hardship and sickness and job loss and, and marital struggle and all these different issues in life, to have a right view of God in Christ is what gives us the grace to remain faithful and strong. Here's the problem. You have to meditate on Christ. You have to think about him. I think that is where our catch is is we are more concerned with ourselves and our glory and our name and our kingdom and our lives that we don't think of Christ in these terms, that this sermon I'm giving you seems so otherworldly because we live in that other world. We we rarely make it to this world of the Bible. In fact, Soren Kierkegaard, he was a Danish philosopher, Uh, much of what he wrote, we wouldn't espouse, but he wrote this parable about competing glories. And let me just read it to you because I think it, it gives you a reason as to why we struggle with being overwhelmed with the glory of Christ as we're saturated in our own glory. Here's what he writes. When the prosperous man on a dark but starlit night drives comfortably in his carriage, and has the lanterns lighted, A, and then he is safe. He fears no difficulty. He carries his light with him, and it's not dark close around him. But precisely because he has the lanterns lighted and has a strong light close to him, precisely for this reason, he cannot see the stars, for his lights obscure the stars, which the poor peasant, driving without lights, can see gloriously in the dark but starry night. So, those deceived ones live in the temporal existence, either occupied with the necessities of life, they are too busy to avail themselves of the view, or in their prosperity and good days they have, as it were, lanterns lighted and close about them, everything so satisfactory, so pleasant, and so comfortable. But the view is lacking, the prospect, that is, the view of the stars can't see the glory of God because our own glory is so bright around us. You don't get to see all of that glory. If we're going to be faithful as servants of this great God, we have to be just drunk on his beauty and his power, and his character. And it demands from you time to take and put the lanterns out that are around you and to focus on this king. You turn to the scriptures and you meditate on them and you eat them and you pray, God, let me see this as you want me to see it. And without that, we're just going to be in our carriages having a nice lovely stroll through a starlit night, passing along in safety without seeing much of his glory. The second thing I would encourage you to do is that you would get a right view of yourself. Get a right view of yourself. You know, when you meditate on Christ, uh, our feelings of self-importance and value and, and indispensability kind of are reduced to ashes. And, and I would ask you to contemplate yourself in light of God, in light of God, not in light of others. We have this just nagging need to keep looking at ourselves in light of other people. And upon that comparison, then we base our value. And, and I, I would encourage us to look at ourselves in light, of, in light of God first, in light of God. And it's going to lead us. Now, for the Christian here, this won't lead you to despair. I promise you. What it does is it leads you to see you for who you really are, not in the you that you think you are. You know, every time I would go out and play golf, I really thought I was a better golfer until the first shot. And then, boom, I'm not a better golfer. I hit the clubhouse. I hit my playing partner. It it was clear right away it happened. Um, (laughs) And and then you leave the 18th hole. You have one good hit. And where do you leave? I think it's coming back. I think I'm getting it. (laughs) We have this incredible ability to deceive ourselves about how good we are. And, folks, there is much grace in you. God's grace in you, much grace. But we want to start with getting a right view of who we really are in light of God, not in light of others. And this is where the gospel is so precious for us. You know, the coal that purified Isaiah, that coal came from an altar, and that altar pictured a sacrifice that was to come, the Lamb of God, like John the Baptist when he saw Jesus. Behold, The Lamb of God got the whole thing. That was the altar. That was the fire. That was going to save us from our sins. Now I see what it's pointing to. And so we think and we dwell upon the gospel. We think we preach to ourselves this gospel. We remind ourselves that Jesus has borne our sins. He's carried our shame. He's taken our guilt. He suffered that fire of God's wrath and he bore it completely. He exhausted the wrath of God by absorbing it in himself himself. So you and I don't face it. So, but we want to start with the right view of God, and then we run to the gospel. And that's when we love the gospel. A lot of people aren't that overwhelmed with the gospel because they're not that overwhelmed with their sin. So the doctor's only as good as you're sick. If you're really sick, you love him. If you're kind of sick, he's helpful. You know, so the more we understand ourselves, it drives us to appreciate the gospel. It drives us to appreciate Christ. And the last thing I would say so get a right view of God, get a right view of yourself, and then get get a right view of the Christian ministry. Get a right view of the Christian life. Notice that Isaiah was given a charge. He was given a charge by God to preach judgment to people. He he was told you're not going to have a lot of success. You're just not going to see the flocks coming in. There's not going to be a ton of conversions. In fact, what you're doing is your role that I'm giving to you is to bring condemnation to the nations. Now, I don't think that is the same, but Isaiah had both a message of hope and judgment. I think we live with the same. The Christian life, you living, declaring the gospel by both the way you live and what you say, is going to have mixed responses. People will not like what you say. You need to expect that. You need to just... That is part of it. You're declaring an otherworldly message. The intellectual won't like it because you're asking him to believe in something he could not figure out. The moralist won't like it because you're telling them they can't live in a way that you're asking them to live. And so you're hemming them both in the corner. And nobody likes to feel like they can't do it if they just try hard enough. But that's the message you have. The Christian life is you are walking Gospels. And so you're going to, you're going to be an aroma of death to some. You're going to be an aroma of life to others. Now, if you're not doing that, then you may not be displaying the Gospel very broadly. Or you may not be, as Carol says, you're not maybe living out loud as, you, as much as you should. But, but the call to be a faithful servant is to be displayers and declares of the Gospel. And listen to what Paul said about this in Second Corinthians. He writes this, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So we're thankful. He's always leading us. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it's a, fragrant, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, it's a fragrance from life to life. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? No one is, outside of God's grace. But that's our call. We're not diplomats, as one man said. We're ambassadors. We we display the gospel through our lives. So, um, So you have Isaiah here showing us By God's grace, what it is to be a a faithful servant. So let's get a right view of God. Let's get a a right view of ourselves. And let's get a right view of, of the life that we're called to live. But I want to end on this. I don't want you to be believing in half a gospel. The people that believe in half the gospel believe that Jesus died for their sins. And that's where it stops. The other half of the gospel is that the Jesus who died for your sins also uh, brought you through adoption to belong to the Father. And through adoption now you receive the Spirit of God. So the Christian here has both been forgiven of his sins, but he's also been filled with the Spirit. And so we can live as sufficient for the task. So let's take a minute. I'm going to begin in prayer. We have a few minutes for a few to pray, and what we do here is we're just collectively coming together as we will in glory one day, and we're just vocalizing to God. Perhaps it's a word of confession or petition for grace. If you do pray, I, I ask you to pray shortly and pray loudly. But I ask you would ask you to pray for all of us, pray corporately, uh, because we all stand in this need. And then um, David's going to close us in just a minute. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness that you've displayed to us in uh, moving with your promises of redemption even through the brokenness of your creation.